Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. This week on Product Love, I talked to Niels Hoven. So previously, Niels led product at Class Dojo, and he was the VP of product at Pocket Gems. Now he's a product manager at Cloudflare. So Niels and I talked about creating unexpectedness in product experiences. Niels believes it's hard to build products that have a water cooler moment or travel through word of mouth. I mean, think back to the last time you excitedly talked to your colleagues during a break about something that caught your eye, right? It was probably like Game of Thrones. But tech products can also inspire little moments of delight, like the Blue Yeti that appears in a sauna after you complete a task. So this all got me to thinking, how do we create those product experiences? How do we make something so unexpected and pleasant in the product that people want to tell the world about it? I think it can be something small and totally random, but it can still add to the delight of your product. These moments of surprise, whether they're confetti that rain down when there's an anniversary or a sticker when you accomplish something, those moments can create emotional resonance and establish a human connection between the user and the product or brand. So what do you think? What products have delightful touches to them? What's something you've excitedly talked about to a friend or peer? Let me know at ebodic at pendo.io or ebodic on Twitter. So welcome lovers of product. I'm here today with Niels Hoven. Niels, why don't you start this by giving us a little overview of your background? Sure. Uh, so I've been in tech for about 10 years. Uh, I've worked across B2B, uh, EdTech, games. Uh, I worked at Tableau Software, Playdom, Pocket Gems, Class Dojo. The, the bulk of my career was actually spent in games uh, at Pocket Gems, a mobile gaming company where I was the VP of product development. And I spent most of my time there working on the development of our new titles. And so, so right now I'm working on a project of my own as well as some uh, angel investing and advising. Awesome. So tell me a little bit about your favorite moments from the gaming industry. Oh, my favorite moments. It's, it's, it's hard to tease this apart. It's, the high points were uh, things that you thought were, uh, were definitely going to work and then turned out that they didn't and then things that you thought were never going to work turned out uh, to work. So give us an, an, one example of each. Uh, okay, so I think my favorite bug from uh, my time in games was actually one of the earliest games that I worked on, which, which is a real-time kind of shoot-em-up game uh, back on Facebook. Uh, it was called Wild Ones, and the final company playtest, the final thing we did before we went live, was a full company playtest tournament. And someone inside the tournament realized that uh, if you chatted a Chinese character in the chat box, uh, it choked all the clients and immediately booted everybody off and it was an automatic win for you. And that was basically the last bug that we found and we fixed before we went live. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a game-breaking critical bug. And, and that would have been an awesome moments. kill move. It, would have been, it was an awesome <laughs> kill move. He won the tournament. I think it was a le legit. We gave him the top prize. Then I guess you know, one, of my, one of my favorite wins was... Tap Paradise Cove was a game that I led in the very early days of mobile games, and that was just as we were starting to figure out that uh, user lifetimes were getting longer and longer. And 
when we rolled out that game for the first time, we actually didn't know whether it was going to work or not. Uh, and so we had we had two plans in parallel. One was, you know, this game is going to work. Let's pump a bunch of money into user acquisition and build up this player base. And simultaneously, we also had the sunset plan that we're going to test this. And if it doesn't work, we're going to scale down the team to a skeleton team and, and that'll be it. And the reason that it, it ended up working, but the reason it turned out that we were so uncertain about whether or not it would work was because the game was actually stickier than anything else that we had ever launched before. And so it essentially broke all of our LTV models. The retention curves just looked different and flatter than any other game we had had. And so uh, it was just a completely, I guess I want to say unexpected success. It wasn't completely unexpected because we had some intuition that it was going to work, but the, the, metrics didn't, the metrics we saw at the time just didn't support uh, the confidence that we had in the product. Yeah, I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit later, but it's really interesting when metrics and intuition are at odds, right? It's, it's hard. It's a tough decision. Which one do you trust? So let's step back a little bit. You know, you started in software engineering and moved into the product side, design. How was the transition? I really enjoyed the transition. I think just on my own, I was always very interested in things like psychology, behavioral economics, just thinking about the world from other people's perspectives. And so I didn't, I didn't even realize that there was a career opportunity in that space. I just always grown up so focused on engineering and building and, and cranking on stuff like that. And so my first real exposure to the idea that there was this other world uh, was when I started meeting some internet marketers. And you know, I, at that time I was in grad school and I was, I was kind of miserable. And then I, I met these, these other people who were basically running million dollar companies from their garages. And I was like, that's cool. I want to learn how to do that. And so I learned about marketing uh, and eventually joined the marketing team at Tableau Software. Uh, which was really cool. It was just, it was a great experience to be in this, such a, a data focused environment where everyone was focused, was passionate about data. But I realized that I didn't just want to sell someone else's product. I actually wanted to have a voice in what was being built. And that's how I made that transition into product management. Awesome. Now, how is having a technical background? I mean, you're kind of a, a technical PM, right? In some ways, you, I don't know if you describe yeah. yourself as that, yeah. but how has having a technical background as a product manager helped and or hurt you? I think it, it's really been an asset. I, I don't think it's a requirement by any means. I've met some very, very good product managers who haven't had technical backgrounds, but I think it's a little bit of an advantage. And I think that advantage is uh, as I'm thinking about directions and features and visions, I can have a little inkling in the back of my head, uh, which of these are going to be more difficult than others, which of them might have more technical risk. And I can use that to uh, kind of do a, a first round of triage before I start talking to a broader audience. So. Talk to me now about being a product person in the game development industry and how it's different than other SaaS companies. And maybe touch on what's similar too. So let's talk about oh, what's man. different, what's similar. Yeah. So, so gaming, I think, is it's kind of like learning product in the school of hard knocks, right? So you have to learn all of the same product management skills. You have to learn about data, analytics, design, um, execution, iteration, but like in the most punishing environment imaginable. Uh, the, the biggest difference, I think, in games is that you're not meeting an existing need. So, so no, no one says, oh, man, I really wish I had a farm on my Facebook account. And it turned out that, that millions of people wanted that. And so you have to, you almost, you induce the need at the same time you're, you're creating means for, for the player to fulfill it. And then at the same time, players are very vocal about telling you when something isn't working, but they don't have the expertise to necessarily explain to you how to fix it. So you can see the problems, but it's really on you to figure out how am I gonna solve this? How am I gonna diagnose this? And on top of that, the market is super crowded. UA is punishingly expensive. Your product has a limited lifetime. So 
once you find product market fit, great, you've got a couple years, and, and then you get to do it all over again. And I think an interesting thing about that is that there's actually not, it, it's a minority of PMs out there who have had the opportunity to take a product that isn't working and dial in that product market fit. Right? A lot of times that's actually the founder's responsibility. And then once that product market fit is getting dialed in, that's when the team gets scaled up and you get to bring in uh, first, second, third PMs to really optimize that and, and tighten up that fit. Uh, but in games, like that's the cycle. You're dialing in product market fit over and over again every couple of years with every launch of a new product. And it's, uh, it's an incredibly powerful learning environment. Yeah, I think that's an interesting thing that a lot of, you know, especially aspiring PMs don't understand. In a lot of startups, you know, by the time they get there, there is some product market fit. So there's a, a roadmap and a vision and a North Star that's kind of been established. And they have maybe less control over the directional, strategic directional picture than they do over kind of the smaller items. Absolutely. And I, I think they often come into that thinking, oh, I'm going to be like defining where this product goes. And it's more like guiding the product to where it goes. Yeah. I, mean, I think that was one of the, that was another good learning experience from games that a lot of times there can be, there are multiple product visions that could work. There's, there's generally not one singular product vision that says the product has to be this. And a lot of times any one of those can work and you just have to pick one. Uh, what frequently kills a product is when you have to Frankenstein multiple product visions together. So, so I personally, I'm, I'm totally happy following someone else's product vision and really dialing that in because like that cohesive single product vision is frequently what allows you to reach that global maximum of, of product potential rather than just like, like a local peak. Hmm. So you've written that an overlooked trait of a great PM is the ability to make good decisions with bad data. Can you explain that and, and maybe talk about how anyone can make good decisions with bad data or even get support to make that decision? <laughs> Yeah, I, so so I'm a little ambivalent about the fact that I wrote that. I, I, I still think I haven't figured out exactly the right way to phrase that. And you know, I think, honestly, the right answer in that situation is probably just to talk to users more and lean into your qualitative data. But the point I was trying to make is that data is kind of like grains of sand on a scale. There, there's not, frequently, there's not going to be one single test that determines your product direction or determines whether something is going to work. You know, every conversation you have, every test you run, uh, every single user that you watch going through your experience is like a grain of sand on one side of scale. And eventually, one side of the scale becomes heavier and heavier and your confidence that this is the right direction grows and grows and grows. It would be a great world that you know, if we were able to send 10,000 users at every single test that we wanted at every single release to, to give us confidence every single time uh, that we're on the right path. But like that's, for most startups, that's just not the world that we live in. And so you have to make do with, with the small amounts of data that you have and use that to validate a direction. So talk to me then about this idea of data-driven design and data-informed design. You know, how do you define the difference and, and why is it important to highlight that? To me, this is this this is kind of gets back to the idea of are you using metrics as as a signal or a goal? Are you using metrics as the thing that you're optimizing for and that is the end goal, or do you have a stronger vision and you're using metrics as a tool to to validate the direction that you're following? Data driven design, uh, I think, in its in its worst instantiation is, is when you rely on metrics to make your decisions for you. And you say, you know, we, we could build feature A or feature B. And so I, I don't know which one. Let, let's split test them and see which one does, does better. And to me, that, that's, it's like an abdication of empathy for the user. It's saying, I don't know what the answer is. Let's, let's test 100 different shades of blue. 
and, and or 41 or 41 uh, <laughs> not to throw anyone under the bus but the problem is that when, when you start having that solely uh, test-driven mentality of let's allow tests to determine the direction of our product, uh, then you end up trading off the, these really easy to measure short-term metrics like revenue. It's very easy to measure short-term revenue gains. And you end up getting those wins at the expense of really hard to measure but critically important long-term metrics like user lifetimes, uh, like brand, like user goodwill. And even if you're not intentionally trading those off, those end up being really important trade-offs that are hard to capture if you're solely just optimizing for metrics. So how should you do it? So, so the way I, I like to think about it is uh, data-informed design. And, and the way I think about that is that you have a mental model of your user. And that mental model of your user is continuously being informed and refined uh, by the, the tests and the conversations that you're having with the users. And over time, that means that your empathy and your understanding for the user is increasing and that allows you to make better decisions about which features are going to resonate. And you can validate those intuitions with data, and you absolutely should be. But at the end of the day, it's a designer and it's a product manager and it's a team that's making decisions, not the data. Yeah, and you mentioned something that I always like to highlight, the word empathy, right? Mm -hmm. I hear, you know, especially when I talk to successful product leaders, one of the common attributes they all have, or a lot of them have, is empathy. Talk to me a little bit about why that's so important. I think it's so important because... At a certain point, you realize that the, the user that you're building for is different from you. In some cases, you know, in, in casual games, building for Farmville, it's, it's, it's very obvious very early on in the product's lifetime that the people who are building this game are very different from the audience that they're building for. And so in order to build something that really resonates, they really need a deep understanding of this audience that you're building for. Uh, other times it happens when the, uh, when the product is more mature and you realize that you're branching into adjacent segments or more specialized use cases that maybe you're not so familiar with. And so having that, that deep understanding of what really gets your, your users and your customers excited is what allows you to have successful products. And that empathy can guide you kind of in a, in a scenario where like maybe the data is pushing you to something that might not be in the best interest of the user? Say that again. So can that empathy help you in the case, like, take data, where data is pushing you to do something that might not be in the best interest of the user, say, like, yeah, absolutely. You know, pop-ups that are selling you stuff? Yeah, pop-ups are a great example. Uh, one of my favorite things to see in competitor products are you know, those series of sale pop-ups when you first enter a product saying, buy this, sale now, and they're, they're so intrusive. But they're very effective if you're purely looking at metrics. Like, no question those pop-ups can do a great job of driving revenue. Uh, But they hurt user goodwill. They hurt the brand. And if you look at the product experiences for companies that really care about the brand, you never see those sorts of intrusive user experiences. And that's because, you know, that that trade-off of short-term revenue versus long-term brand pain or goodwill pain is really toxic for a company. And that empathy for your users can help you avoid that. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It triggered a thought. An old professor of mine, Jack Risman at Tepper Business School, used to tell me that story about like, you know, a restaurant. And they mm-hmm. had this, you know, like popular sandwich that was there. And, you know, they ended up hiring a, an accountant and a finance guy one day. And he's like, well, you know, we could save five cents if we took this off the sandwich or this off the plate. And no one really cares about that anyways. Yes. And we can test that. And the people kept coming back. And then they took a little more off. <laughs> took a little more. And then got to the point where like just people stopped coming and it just yeah. happened suddenly where like the drop-off was suddenly there and they're like the experience isn't there anymore and you can apply that to, to software right like Absolutely. we were talking about before where like 
you know, engagement's there, it's great, it's awesome, and then you start, in this case, you're not taking things away, but you're you're making the experience worse yeah. by pushing more, you know, revenue generating things to the point where at some point it might just go from great to nothing. Yeah, you, you see this as you burn down your user goodwill that, uh, you know, the, as the product quality declines uh, or you start, you know, turning the cranks on your users to squeeze too much revenue out of them, uh, just metrics just all of a sudden fall off a cliff. And sometimes after that happens, it's just too late. You can bring the product back, but you've burned through that that store of goodwill and, and brand that you had and it's too late to salvage it. Yeah, I worry about this too with business software when people concentrate a lot on daily active users or engagement and start thinking of, okay, how do I drive them there and start building more feature set that gets them to use product more, mm -hmm. where really they just want to, in a business case, efficiently accomplish a task and get out and right. you know, get off to their family or get on Farmville or yep. you know whatever it happens to be, right? And so there can be that kind of... Uh, you know, the, the metrics guiding you in the wrong direction that maybe empathy is kind of that that force that helps you, you know, right. not do that, not do the bad things. I didn't you see that I didn't ask that very well, but I think yeah, you know, you see that in, in products like Slack that are that are following the uh, the Facebook model of let's try and own all of the day's engagement in, inside our product platform. And, um, you know. I think it's too early to say whether that's going to work or whether or not it's going to work, but you, you definitely do see the pushback from people who are saying, Slack is disrupting my day, I'm finding it harder to be productive because I'm constantly getting pinged on Slack. And metrics-wise, that's probably very positive because you see more engagement, you see more time uh, spent inside the program. But you also, there's this pushback where people are starting to feel like maybe this is not actually optimal or healthy for my working environment. And so figuring out how to tread that line is, uh, is very nuanced. And it, it starts to get cumbersome too, right? Mm -hmm. I personally am, am, am very frustrated by using Slack. Um, there are things that I really love about it and there are things that I really dislike about it, but it's, uh, I, I find it very disruptive and, and cumbersome to have to keep track of during my day. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting trying to keep, like, you think about growth and you think about making things better and at the same time, maybe by adding things, you're often making it worse. Yeah, absolutely. And not necessarily getting customers that are going to pay in the business world, not getting them that are going to, pay you more money, right. but maybe more engaged doesn't even lead to more stickiness. Right. You know, this, it's not, an, a lot of this business, this business software is not ad-driven software like Facebook, where every additional hour of eyeball time translates directly to revenue. Absolutely. Um, so you know, optimizing for engagement for business software may not be optimizing for a metric that isn't even beneficial to the company. So talk to me about some of the underlying, you know, things that are important with what we just talked about, and that being retention. Mm -hmm. You know, how are companies and even analytics companies sometimes getting retention wrong? So this is, this is kind of a, a nuanced argument, so let me, uh, let me try to think of a way to explain this uh, crisply. I guess the, the point that I want to make is that a lot of times people refer to metrics like retention and conversion as though they're, they're very concretely defined quantities, like, like mass velocity, but, but they're not. They're just these abstract calculations that we define because we found them useful. Sometimes some of those nuances of the way we define them can cause funny things to happen in the metrics, especially around edge cases. And as a product manager, you tend to be very concerned about edge cases and funny things happening in the metrics because when you see them, you invest a lot of time to track them down to figure out why this thing is going wrong. And sometimes those funny things in the metrics aren't actually coming from something in your product. They're coming from a, a nuance of the way you define your metric. So 
A concrete example uh, with retention is a very common way to define, say, daily retention is let's look at each calendar day and uh, let's say today is May 1st. Um, if people come back tomorrow, the, the percentage of people who showed up on May 1st who come back tomorrow on May 2nd, that's the percentage of today's cohort that retained for one day. Generally, that's fine. A situation where that can be tricky is imagine today is May 1st and I turn on user acquisition to run a test today and I happen to turn on that user acquisition at like 11.59 tonight. And so I get this spike of traffic right at the end of the day. Well, these people only need to stick around for a minute or two to log an action now in May 2nd. And so the threshold for level of engagement that they need to hit in order to qualify as one day retained is going to be far lower than what you would have if, say, you ran that uh, spike of user acquisition at 12.01 in the morning, where people would then have to stick around for 24 hours to show up and be registered as, as retained for one day. And so if you're not careful about that, if you don't recognize how your metrics are, are being defined, then you might end up with ghost spikes or drops in your one-day retention that you attribute to changes you made in your product, which are just actually just due to nuances of the way uh, your user acquisition and your retention metrics interact with each other. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting you mentioned that. I had a conversation the other day. I was talking with someone who was like, oh, we have 90% of our customers came back, or users came back for the second month. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wait, you just launched that product on April 29th, right? <laughs> and so we're in May, it's like three days later. Right. So what you're really saying is 90% of your customers came back three days later, because right. it's not, it's, it's a second month calendar wise, but it's not like they've stayed there for 30 days. Exactly, you've basically uh, looked at your three day retention and you've assumed that it's one month retention. Like that's gonna give you a very different picture of your product. Absolutely. And now especially next month rolls around and maybe you, you launch your next test on the first of your month and you're like, no one is sticking around this month. What did we break in that product? And your entire team spends a whole bunch of cycles trying to figure out what went wrong. Yeah, I mean, we had 10 users on April 29th. There was nine users on May 1st, and it was then seven users on June 1st. And you're like, oh, what happened? And it's like, it's not that bad from May 1st to June 1st. Yeah. It's just how you looked at your metrics. I, I definitely... I discovered this problem by going on a wild goose chase for a couple of weeks and then finally realizing, oh, like this, you know, this is something just deeply inherent in the metrics and the way we were calculating retention. Yep. And, and it doesn't necessarily then, if you're doing things wrong, you might get these false negatives around failure. Right. Um, or or su success. Yeah. Yes. And you, you've written about how failing faster, invalidating an idea early isn't always possible. So talk to me a little bit about when it works and when it doesn't and what do you suggest instead? Right. I think the mentality of, of failing fast works much better for more mature products where you have a better understanding of your users, you have a better understanding of your North Star. I think where failing fast really tends to fail is on, on really early stage products where when you roll out anything for the first time, it's going to be so buggy. There's going to be all sorts of performance issues, UX issues, um, just little, little bugs throughout the product. There's going to be tons and tons of false negatives. And if you get away from that product too quickly, um, you're missing the opportunity to, to maybe find something that, that's really special there. And so when you're launching a, a, a really new product, I tend to encourage people not to focus on the negatives because there's going to be more of them than you could possibly count, but really look for those positives because it's really hard to find false positives. You're looking for that, that, that kernel that says, okay, like this is encouraging. I found something here that's working. Uh, let me build on that. Yeah, I think that's important, especially in a startup when you find that little thing that like they can't live without or they really love or is almost to the point where they can't live without it. And if yeah. you can focus on that as opposed to, 
you know, fixing the things that are bad, but maybe you're just going to bring them up to, you know, par or even slightly subpar with competitors. Right. When we were testing our first parent subscription product at Class Dojo, this was a, a subscription content-based product. Uh, you were running a bunch of tests. We were looking, we were looking at click-through rates on the sales pages, the, uh, the conversion rate into a free trial. We were looking at retention and engagement with the product over the course of the first week during the free trial. And then we were looking at uh, the conversion from free trial into paid at the end of that first week free trial. And you know, the conversion rates on that first sales page weren't that good. And the, uh, the retention and engagement rates during that first week weren't that good. And if you were solely looking at those metrics, there would be a temptation to say this product isn't working. But there is an incredible conversion rate from the free trial into the paid. And so people who had experienced the product over the course of the week uh, were choosing to stick around and pay for that first month and continuing with their subscription. And they, they valued what they were seeing in the product. And so even there, there, are the, there are these signs that were false negatives, there was this one really encouraging data point that gave us the confidence to continue moving forward. Hmm. So talk to me about creating unexpectedness in product experiences, mm-hmm. what that is and why it's great. So it's, it's really hard to build products that grow through word of mouth. I and mean, it's something really special when, when that happens. And it's... I think for, for a long time, people assumed that was just something that happened, but in, in software, and maybe in software, those happen kind of by chance, but in, in other industries, like, like say TV, this, this is actually something that was actively designed for. These are water cooler moments. Uh, television executives know about designing uh, hooks into their storylines that are so surprising and so, so shocking that people can't wait to tell other people about them the next day at work at the water cooler. And that spreads the excitement uh, in the community around the, this TV product. And you can design that in software as well. You can create these water cooler moments that surprise people and delight people that people want to talk about the next day. The, the most, I think the, the most elegant example of this that, that I just think is so cool is uh, from actually Hearthstone, Blizzard's playing card game. And I heard a talk from one of the designers where they were talking about designing um, for, essentially for these water cooler moments. They created cards that had probabilistic features that had very, very small percent chances of completely altering the direction of the game. So from you know, 99.9% of the players who are playing this game, it remains a game of fundamental skill and, uh, and that's very compelling. But every once in a while, there's this moment where a win is snatched away from you or where you grab victory from the jaws of defeat. And that's so exciting that you can't wait to tell your friends about it the next day uh, at the water cooler. And that helps build this excitement in this community around, uh, around Hearthstone and continues to drive its word of mouth. Yeah, and I, I think you can even do things like that in business software. Like Absolutely. people think like, oh, that's great for games and fun and entertainment and media, but you can do the same thing in business software. Yeah, I think one example is Asana. So Asana, every once in a while when you when you move a, a card from one column to another, a little blue Yeti pops out. And you know, it has no bearing on the functionality of the software. It's just a, a little delightful surprise. And the first time I saw that, I talked about it. I posted about it. I posted on Twitter. It's like, who else has seen this? Uh, I, I can't get to recur. Was this a bug? Well, what's, what's happening here? And that creates interest and conversation and excitement. It, again, drives word of mouth for a product. Yeah, I mean, we've worked with people that it's one year using business software. Something pops up. There's confetti. It's like, hey, this is your first year anniversary. Yeah. You know, tell us what's the best thing you've accomplished. Yeah. You know, what are you most proud of? And that was, yeah. those kind of moments are awesome. I mean, people are... 
the the expectations they're 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 raising now, but historically the the expectations for level of quality for business software are just so low, and so just little delightful moments, some some confetti here, a congratulations there, can make such a huge emotional impression on, on a user, and, and they really it, remember that. And it, it establishes more of a human connection too, Absolutely. right? An emotional connection. It builds a connection between the user and the brand. Uh, it, it builds trust. It builds community. It, it can be so powerful. Yeah, no, completely agree. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, when you're thinking about product vision, what's your opinion about testing? So this is, this is a tricky one. I, I guess I, I touched on this a, a little bit before where I said I really believe in the power of a, of a single, strong, cohesive product vision. And, you know, at, at Pocket Gems, uh, this, this was a lesson that we, we kind of learned the hard way because in, in the early days of Facebook games and, and mobile games, Games were built very much ad adhering to the, the MVP lean startup mentality of, of get something out there and, and just iterate on it as fast as possible and dial it in based on the metrics. And, and that's, that's a really effective way of finding your way to like a local maximum for a product. And if you're a first mover in a new space where there's a large pain point and there's not a lot of competition, I think that can be extremely effective. The problem is once a market becomes more competitive, um, then that local maximum is, is no longer good enough for, for the level of product quality that you have to hit. You actually, you have to find that global maximum that is what is this best in class product. And I think you have to find that through a strong product vision and you, you kind of just have to be right. That, uh, you know, that, that product vision is going to be informed by data and conversations and empathy, but at the end of the day, it's, it's a single strong product vision, not, not a Frankenstein of, of a bunch of different pieces. So, I mean, you would advise people like to stay strong, so to speak. Like there's going to be ups and downs and through testing and through metrics, you might be going through a little bit of that, you know, trough of disillusionment or the, you know, valley of despair, but, you know, to stick through it. Um, to some extent, I would say, yeah. I mean, have, have that strong product vision. Be, be continuously validating it, right? So there's definitely times when you have to get away from a product vision. You, you believe in a vision and you do a bunch of iterations and you say, maybe this just isn't working because feature A hasn't been built yet. So you build feature A and it doesn't work. And you say, maybe it's not working because we haven't built feature B yet. And you build feature B and it doesn't work. Then you have to start questioning whether your understanding of your users and your audience is as strong as you, as you think it is. But, but absolutely, there are going to be false negatives, and sometimes you just have to adhere to that strong product vision and, and, and keep pushing towards it, keep pushing through it. So let's, let's talk about hiring, and specifically hiring for product teams. You know, do you have any advice? How do you hire? Well, there, there are lots of different flavors of product managers, so I think it's important to recognize that you know, you're going to have product managers who are more quantitative, who are more qualitative, who are more technical, who are, who are more passionate about production. Uh, and there's lots of flavors of team cultures. There's, there's the question of, do you want a PM who's going to be more of a leader, a PM who's going to be more of a facilitator? So first of all, it's, understand, it's important to understand what is the kind of PM that you're looking for that's really going to be the right match for your team. And once you know that, then I, I think interviews are really about probing into those different skill areas for the PM and you know, probing into their analytics and their design and their, their user research abilities to understand the profile of the PM that you're talking to. I'm a big believer in trying to ask uh, questions that actually don't test domain expertise when you're interviewing a PM. So, for example, uh, if you're asking a PM, if probing into analytics ability for a PM, I think there's, a, there's very frequently a temptation to ask questions that are about, say, performance marketing or user acquisition. But 
someone who has just been in the industry for a while is going to be able to answer those questions very, very easily just because they've seen those patterns multiple times versus potentially a very strong analytics person who's coming in from a different industry. You're not going to get a signal that, uh, that accurately reflects what they're capable of. So give an example. Um, of an analytics question that I like? Yeah. Um, I, I do, but I, but I use an interview, so I don't know if I want to say that. <laughs> <laughs> if you're interviewing with Niels, don't listen to this right. next answer. I think my, the analytics questions that I like to ask tend to be a little more abstract. Uh, I really enjoy asking questions that uh, are a little counterintuitive, that have kind of counterintuitive aspects as you're working through them. And I think that's really interesting because it uh, it means that as someone is working through the question, uh, they're likely going to get stuck, and that's fine. Uh, and that's sort of my expectation. And then you have the opportunity to give them hints and work with them as they work through the question and see how quickly they're able to incorporate that new information and feed into their ability to answer the question. So can, you, can we steal one from your repertoire? Can you give us a, a concrete example? I think it would be interesting. I can give... I'll give an example of one that is similar, but I haven't personally used. Um, this one, let's see, let me think about how exactly it would go. Okay, so, so an example of this sort of counterintuitive analytics question would, would go something like this. I would say, you are running uh, performance marketing for, for this company, and you notice that conversion rates on our ads have dropped very suddenly, and you're in investigating what's going on. Um, you know, what, what do you think it could be? And usually the way that you approach that is you would break it down into different segments and look at different things. And as you go through the question, what we discover is that even though conversion rates have dived uh, for our ads as a whole, when you look at each individual segment, say we're marketing to users on iPads and iPhones, uh, both of those actually have had increases in their conversion rates. And so that's kind of strange. Like you see, uh, when you look at the, the segments individually, uh, the conversion rates on iPads have increased, the conversion rates on iPhones have increased, but the conversion rates overall have decreased. So, so the question is, what's going on? How can this happen? It's kind of counterintuitive. And as you work through the question, what would you discover is what's actually going on is it's kind of a mix shift problem um, that, uh, let's say, even though conversion rates for both iPads and iPhones have increased significantly, Originally, the conversion rates for iPads were very, very low. And so what's actually happened is that more of our traffic is now coming from iPads. And so, so even though there's been this overall improvement, uh, there's been a mix shift to lower performing channels. And so that's where the problem is coming from. But on the surface, it can be very unintuitive that like, how can it be that overall things are improving? But when I look at my individual audience segments, things are actually getting worse or, or the other way around. Got it. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very interesting during interviews to get people to to think through problems so you can understand their thought process, right, and how mm -hmm. they approach solving problems or testing hypotheses, yeah. as opposed to just, you know, like you said, understanding, you know, how things are done and being able to repeat it, so to speak. Right. Yeah. I think the thing I like about problems like that is that there's generally very natural ways to start by... Things like just trying some numbers and trying to get a better understanding of what's going on. And very frequently, and, and that's great, so I love seeing that because that's a great tool to bring to the table. But in this one particular case, it tends not to work. And so you get the, you get the opportunity to see someone try a tool that's very important, and they run into a dead end. Then you get to see them react to a hint and then try a new tool. So talk to me a little bit about product teams working with other departments. Uh, you know, How do you recommend teams communicate and work well with other departments. Do you have any tips and tricks there? 
And I think one of the, so one of the most important things is to uh, you know of course you need supportive leadership, and then I think it's it's kind of cliched to say this at this point, but I think it's it's always good to get small wins quickly. Right? If you're trying to prove the value of product management, then get that small win. Uh, show your team how the fact that you're here can now take some of the grunt work off of their plate that they no longer have to deal with, or save the time of building a feature that wasn't going to work because you did the user research ahead of time. And so, you know, no one, no one enjoys building products that users don't enjoy. And so if you can head off that failure early, then, then that can be very exciting to a team. Awesome. So talk to me a little bit about the product management community and new things you see coming. Like, what do you see as upcoming trends for product management? So, so one thing that I personally am really interested in right now is ISAs, income share agreements. Uh, we're seeing a lot of discussion about these with the success of companies like Lambda School. Uh, the idea here being that you can have a coding bootcamp, but rather than charging, say, an upfront fee of $10,000, instead you charge a percentage of the salary increase that students get after they complete your bootcamp. And, and this is particularly exciting for a few different reasons. Uh, one, of course, accessibility. It makes uh, these uh, educational programs accessible to a much broader audience, but, but also incentives. It aligns the incentives of the company with those of the student because now the school is not just focused on building as large a top of funnel as possible. They are deeply committed to making sure that students who go through the program succeed. So Lambda School has seen tremendous uh, traction uh, with their income share agreements and just seen these amazing growth numbers, and I think that's really cool. Uh, the aspect of ISAs that I think is going to be really interesting is actually the metrics side, because these schools now have to care about uh, two aspects of their product that they really didn't have to care about so much before, which is both uh, selectiveness and effectiveness. So they have to be very thoughtful about who... Uh, they admit into their programs because they only want to admit students that they, that they can be confident that they can make successful. Uh, and then, of course, the effectiveness of the program. They need to make sure that every student who goes through their, their program can succeed. And, and this becomes really interesting because those two metrics of selectiveness and effectiveness are really deeply intertwined. So let's say you have a cohort of students that goes through your program and you have a really low hire rate after the program. How do you figure out whether that was due to something that went wrong in admissions or was it something that went wrong in your educational experience? Uh, I think that's a, a, very, a very tricky problem. I, I kind of have some ideas about how to tease that apart, but I think, uh, I think it's something that we're going to see increased understanding uh, of come up in the, in the next couple of years. Yeah, I mean, you, you see that a lot in the product startup space, right? When you're mm -hmm. like, oh, you launch a new product, you have a sales team. Sales team's not hitting numbers. Is it the sales team? Because you probably have a small sales team. It might be one guy. I mean, hopefully it's not. I always tell people to try to at least have two sales yeah, people yep. so you have that data. Oh, that's a great point. Um, but, you know, is it sales? Is it product? And the same kind of conundrum, right? How do yeah. you tease out that information? One tip is definitely having two sales people <laughs> uh, because then it's not. I mean, you have at least if they're both hitting like 20% of their number, then, well, maybe there's an issue there. Yep. So the more sales people you have, the better data you have as far as whether it's sales or whether it's uh product or, or market or message. Yeah, uh, absolutely. But you, you, you know, that's the big problem in a startup, right? Teasing out those little issues, like where are our issues, uh, making sure we figure out what they are and then solving them because there's no point in solving the ones that aren't really the problem. Yeah, and, and to your point about having two salespeople, right? As, as your, it becomes easier and easier as your sample sizes get larger and you have more and more salespeople, but you know, really early on when you have 
only one salesperson or you have only a handful of people going through your program, then uh, you, end up, you end up having to rely more on intuition. Yeah, no, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about Niels. What's your favorite product? So right now, I think, I mean, I, I feel like it's, it's another cliche to say this, but I, I think Superhuman Mail is, is a really cool product. Uh, and I think what's so cool about it isn't actually the product itself, it's the way that they've discovered this opportunity that no one else was looking at. And, you know, Superhuman is a male client, and it's a male client that costs $30 a month. And you know, if you told me that there is an opportunity in the male client space to build you know, an almost $400 a year subscription mail product that would improve upon like, the free Gmail experience, I would have said no way, but Superhuman realized that Actually, there's this market of, of users, you know, executives, VCs, who are extremely time sensitive and not at all price sensitive. And if we can build a product that really nails their needs, then we can charge a whole lot of money for it. And, and they're doing that and people are raving about it. Hmm. That's a great example. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's interesting. I mean, where, you know, there's this time versus dollars in this trade-off you see that in a lot of places from mobile games to superhuman mm-hmm. and there's a nice interesting niche that you can find where like you said there's people that you know the value of the money is less than the value of their time yeah in the superhuman case right yeah i think we're we're seeing there there's a a recent blog post about this that I think was, was spot on that was talking about how we're seeing more and more of this this bifurcated pattern in like product ecosystems or, or yeah product markets where there are really like two two product profiles out there you know, Android versus iOS uh, free Gmail versus Superhuman where one is pretty good and it meets ninety nine percent of the market's needs and then there's this other just premium product that is absurdly expensive and meets a very narrow segment of the market's needs and there's like and that's just it just like this weird two product bifurcation so I have to ask since we asked about favorite product but you're also from the gaming industry and yeah. I, I grew up loving video games <laughs> uh, What's your favorite, or maybe favorites? It would yeah. be hard for me to pick one favorites yeah. video game. Um, yeah, I think this is this is old school, but I'm gonna have to say Diablo Two. Okay, you know, Diablo Two is just it's just such a great hack and slash experience that that really captures the the emotional feeling of what it feels like to be a, a hero. That you just you're plowing through hordes and hordes of enemies. You don't have to be that strategic. It's just. Uh, Hack, 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 slash, 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 piles of loot flying out everywhere. It's just a, a, a smorgasbord of a delightful peak user experiences. And I, I think they did. I think it was such a, a landmark game at the time, and Blizzard did such an amazing job with it. Were you disappointed in 3, or did you like 3, but not as much as 2? Oh, man, I, I was a little disappointed in 3. And and I think it's, it's, it's kind of sad about that, because it actually wasn't the game's fault. It was really due more to the auction house more than anything else. Uh, I think what really made Diablo 2 work is uh, the emotional feeling of, of progression that you get inside the game where you get this, this peak of excitement each time you find a new weapon and then you, you work with it for a little while and then, uh, and then you get kind of bored with it and then a new weapon drops and you get very excited again and you get reinterested. And the problem with Diablo 3 is that the auction house really smoothed all of that out. And so the, the underlying captivating emotional experience that was so that was so compelling for Diablo 2 just got just got steamrolled by by the original version of the auction house. Yeah, and it's it's an interesting unintended consequence, right? You're it adding is. this new feature that people are interested in auction houses mm-hmm. uh, and worked well in a lot of different games, but now you're losing that aspect of like the new and exciting 
because you might jump over three new and exciting. So you're yeah. losing like steps A, B, and C because they can buy F. Yep. You know, usually in most cases, liquidity is really good. Like there are all these companies like like Open Door and Uber that have been so successful by injecting liquidity into a real world economy. It turns out that in games, liquidity may be not so good because it, it, it mutes the intentionality of the user experience that designers are able to provide to the players. Yes, the stepped growth, exactly, so to speak. Exactly. So a f- final question for you today, three words to describe yourself. It's uh, one of my favorite interview questions, too. Uh, this is an interesting one. I- I'm going to say uh, curious. I-, I just I think that's what drew me into product. I love figuring out what makes things work, what makes people tick. Um, rational, uh, because I love figuring out, understanding the, the, the truth and the explanations behind things, and growth-minded. Um, I think either, you know, whether it's in for me or for a product or for a company, I just seem, I, I love seeing that, that trajectory of, of constant improvement. I, I find it so fulfilling. Awesome, well thank you, this has been great. Thank you for having me, this was really fun. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people. <laughs>